Hello and welcome to Enjoying the Bible Podcast. Today is January the 5th, and uh, today we're going to be looking at Genesis 13 through 15. We're not going to have any New Testament readings today. It's just in the old, Genesis 13 through 15. You may want to hit pause right now and go ahead and read that text, and then come back and I'll share some highlights with you from uh, the readings today. Okay, so as we look at Genesis 13, the big idea, the thing that this chapter is about, is the separation of Abram and his nephew Lot. Uh, we're told uh, that uh, there was a problem between the herdsmen, uh, between Abraham's Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, and we learn of that in verse 7, chapter 13, verse 7. And because of this, Abram came up with the idea that they needed to separate. And so he let Lot know that whichever way, whichever direction he wanted to go, uh, Abram would choose the other. It was a given that as Lot, being worldly in his thinking, as he looked toward the Jordan Valley, which is lush, it's green, as he looked there, obviously he wanted to go there. And uh, so he made a decision that seemed right in the moment and would eventually, and actually fairly quickly, uh, prove problematic for him. But the one thing that I want us to look at, and actually just, just to consider as we look at the truth of Genesis 13, is that we serve a God who is sovereign. We serve a God who is sovereign. And what that means is, is that he does whatever he desires and nothing can stop him. That he is fully in control. And because he is good, we can trust him with that control. But what, how we see that playing out is that there was a problem, as we mentioned uh, in verses 6 and 7, there was a problem uh, between the herdsmen. There was conflict. The land was not able to support, according to Abram, the land was not able to support the two. And so he came up with the resolution and said, Lot, you choose. I'll do whatever you don't do. Now, we don't know what's going on in Abram's mind. We don't know if he is being passive uh, we don't know if he uh, doesn't, if he's tiptoeing around on the relationship and doesn't want to harm a relationship, and so he lets Lot do whatever he wants to do, and Abram, you know, plays the martyr. We don't know what's going on in Abram's mind, but one of the things we do know is that when he simply lets someone else make a decision that Abram, being the person of faith that he was, he knew that God was going to make it right. He rested in God's sovereignty. And in fact, whenever you read and you're reading uh, Genesis 13, verses 14 through 18, you see that the Lord shows up, and the Lord, even after Lot makes his decision, and now Abram gets you know, the area that is uh, like a desert. <laughs> lots of rocks, lots of sand, uh, very little greenery, at least compared to the Jordan Valley. Even though that is now Abram's experience, God shows up and does not reprimand Abram for his decision to let Lot have that. He doesn't even reprimand Lot. God simply reaffirms his covenant, his promise to Abram. It's as if the decision that Lot made is irrelevant to the Lord. 
And I just want you to know that as we read that in Genesis 13, that regardless of what happens to us, regardless of what choices we make or that others make that we are impacted by, it does not affect God's control over our life. And we see that principle in Genesis 13. And so I just wonder if maybe some of you who are listening, um, you were dealing with some things. I wonder if some of you have had a parent who has made a decision and you are now living with the consequences or a spouse or a child or a friend or a co-worker, a boss. Someone has made a decision and you are living with the consequences and you may be tempted to feel as if that it took God by surprise. You know that isn't true in your mind, but in your heart you feel as if that's true. I just want you to reflect on the truth of Genesis 13 that even when Abram passively allowed someone else to make a choice, that that had no bearing at all on the fact that God is still going to do what God's going to do. So rest in God's sovereignty today. All right, as we look at Genesis 14, um, we understand in Genesis 13 that Lot gets to choose where he wants to go. And in the very next chapter, we realize that Lot is in trouble. He's taken captive. Abram has to go rescue him. There's a couple of things I want to bring out in this chapter. As you read, as you have probably already read Genesis 14, there's a couple of things that I want to bring out in this chapter. One is, uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 14, verse 1, it says, In those days King Amraphel of Shinar. Do you see that? Shinar. Well, Shinar may ring a bell with you if you've really been paying attention as you've re been reading Scripture, because it showed up in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. Remember that big, broad-stroke chapter that, that Moses wrote as God's Holy Spirit wrote, uh, wrote through him? And Genesis 10 is that big broad stroke chapter that shows that from Noah, the peoples of the earth were beginning to fill the earth and nations were arising. It didn't happen overnight. It took a lengthy amount of time for that to happen. That's a big broad stroke chapter. But if you look at chapter 10, verse 10, it talks about how Babylon is in the land of Shinar. And so when we come back to our chapter in Genesis 14, verse 1, and we see that one of the kings, one of the kings that came against the, uh, the area where Lot was living in Sodom, he was King Amraphel of Shinar. And so we realize at least one of the kings was coming from the east, the area where Babylon and Assyria and the Persian Empire uh, would claim their stronghold. The one thing I want you to see and this is a little bit of backdrop uh, to the narrative of the Old Testament and the desirability of, of Canaan, the Promised Land. And it's this, that uh, the major world powers, uh, before Rome came along, the major world powers were either in Egypt, which was southwest of the Promised Land, or it was the major powers of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, uh, and those were northeast of the Promised Land. And so if you've got Egypt in the southwest of the Promised Land and Assyria, Persia, and Babylon in the northeast of the, of the Promised Land, of Canaan, you realize that Canaan is a very desirable uh, piece of real estate. It, it 
both of those, Egypt and the powers uh, in um, Babylon and Nineveh and all of those, they wanted the promised land because it would act like a buffer. You know, if they could set up um, some friendly to them uh, nations and those that were under their control, then in order for the country from the other side, the major world power to come and attack them, like, like before Babylon could attack Egypt, they would have to go through Canaan. And so that's why we see so much fighting going on constantly in the Promised Land. Uh, it's because Egypt kept attacking and wanted to take control of it, as well as Assyria came in and eventually took out the northern tribes, and Babylon came in and took out the southern tribes. They wanted that piece of real estate. The other thing that I want to bring out in chapter 14 is uh, this uh, priest named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, and we see that in verse 18, uh, Genesis 14, 18. Uh, this king, let me just share with you what his name means. Uh, in verse eight, in, in uh, chapter 14, verse 18, his name is Melchizedek. Well, in the Hebrew, that is two words that's put together, Melchi and Zedek. But if you take that to its literal root word, it's Melech and Sade. Melech means king, Sade means righteousness. And so Melchizedek's name literally meant king of righteousness. And then it says in verse 18 that Melchizedek, king of righteousness, was the king of what? Salem or Shalom, which means peace. And so this guy's name meant he was the king of righteousness and he was literally the king of peace. Well, I want you to know that this, once again, is a road sign that points to Jesus. If you want to write down this passage, write down Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And the writer of Hebrews clearly sees that in this priest, this kingly priest, Melchizedek, that the Old Testament uh, is providing a picture that points to the ultimate king of righteousness who will reign over the kingdom of peace. So as you're reading about Melchizedek, uh, go on and go to the New Testament and read what it says there and realize that this is yet one more picture of Jesus that the Old Testament points to. Okay, so we come to the final chapter that we'll consider this morning, and there's a few things that I want to bring out in Genesis 15. A few things I want to bring out in Genesis 15. The first thing is as we look at the chapter, we realize that the big idea is once again, God is making his promise, or the Old Testament word is covenant. He's making his covenant once again to Abraham, but in this chapter, he does something that is that is powerful, and I want to bring that out to you. Um, I want you to know, first of all, that as we read the first few verses, you know, you heard, if you read this chapter already, you would have seen where God says in verse 1, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your reward will be very great. God is once again saying, I'm going to give you what I said I was going to give you. But what's Abram's response in verse 2? But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I'm, I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. 
he's talking to God and he's asking questions and he's saying, God, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. Now, if your view of God is one where you feel as if he is all law and if he is just always on the verge of getting angry and upset, then you will assume that what's going to happen in the rest of the chapters, God's going to reprimand and maybe even discipline Abram. But that's not what happens because that's not the God that we serve. God is law, but he's also grace. In fact, when we see that God came in the person of the Son, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that Jesus was filled with grace and truth. The truth represents the law. Grace represents God's attitude toward us. And so, God is not upset. In fact, God continues to speak with Abram to build his faith. I just want you to know that there are so many instances in Scripture where God could have gotten upset at people, and he did not. Um, because they were legitimate questions, they weren't perpetually doubting. They wanted to believe. They just didn't understand, and so they asked the questions. The psalmist constantly was asking questions of the Lord. Even Thomas in the Gospels said, I won't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead until I can put my hand in his side and see those nail prints in his hands. And when Jesus showed up, he didn't reprimand Thomas. He gave him the proof that he needed. And so I just want you to know that in your relationship with the Lord, pursue this relationship that Abraham had with the Lord, a friend of God. And if you've got questions, don't hide them. Open them up. Open them up to the Lord in prayer and ask him knowing that he's a loving father that's, that's listening and he wants to help you in your faith. I also want to point out a huge verse in Genesis 15 and it's verse 6. Uh, in fact, and it's underlined in my Bible. It may be underlined in yours. Verse 6 says this, Abram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, credited it to him, Abram, as righteousness. And so that verse says, Abram believed the Lord. The Lord said he was going to give him an offspring. He was going to give him offspring through his body. And Abram believed God. He believed his promise. He rested in that promise. And as a result, God credited him with righteousness. Now, I want you to write this uh, passage down. I want you to write down Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Romans 4, 1 through 5. And I want you to really uh, look at verse 3. Why verse 3? Because Paul, as he wrote to the church at Rome, quoted this verse. <laughs> he quoted this passage in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. But if you look at the context in verses 1 through 5, what Paul is doing is he is saying that this verse, Genesis 15, 6, when Abram believed God and God credited Abram with righteousness because of his belief, that in this Paul sees that this is how God credits us with the righteousness of Christ. We don't work to achieve it. We don't work to try to maintain it. It is faith. As we believe in Him and trust in Him, then He credits us with His righteousness. That's how we're saved. We're not just forgiven. We're credited with the righteousness of, of Jesus. And how do we get that forgiveness? How do we get credited with righteousness? We trust. And uh, by the way, if you've got a pen and paper handy, I just want to give you the three acts of faith. And this is something that has been church tradition for many times as, as Christian theologians and pastors and Christians have looked at faith and asked the question, what is it? 
they have generally agreed that it is three things, three acts. The first is knowledge of the truth. You, know, you can't have faith in something if you don't know it, right? And so the first thing is the knowledge of the truth. In order for us to be saved and to trust in Jesus, we have to know the truth about Jesus and the gospel and how he died on the cross to pay the sin debt of anyone who will trust in him. You have to have the knowledge. So that's the first act of faith is knowledge of truth. Number two is belief in that truth. And whenever I say belief, I'm talking intellect that we must understand what that truth is and must believe it in our mind. Must believe it in our mind. We must understand it in a way, that we must embrace it in a way that's understandable to us so we believe it. And then three, we trust or rest. It's not enough just to believe it in our mind. We have to trust in that and rest in that. And so this is what Abram did. He had the knowledge of the truth. What was the knowledge of the truth? God was promising that he was going to give Abram an heir and God was going to fulfill the covenant. And so with that knowledge, step two, Abram intellectually believed God. But that wasn't enough just to intellectually believe. Step three is Abram Abram trusted God. He rested in Him. He didn't just believe it in his mind, but he rested in that fact, and it changed how he thought and how he acted. This is what faith is. Now, one other thing, and I'll quickly go over this. Uh, we see an interesting picture in verses 9 through 21. Uh, this is where God tells Abram, hey, I want you to get some uh, uh, animals. Uh, I want you to get a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And I want you to cut everything except the turtle dove and the pigeon in half, put it on either side, and then um, you know, we're going to walk through that. Now, wh what in the world is that? Well, let me tell you what it is. It was a solemn covenant. It was a, a, a ritual that they would have done at that time. And what the picture was is the two people who made a covenant, they would walk through these severed pieces of animal. They would walk through those. And the picture was is that if either you or I break our side of the covenant, if we break our side of this deal, this promise, then let this happen to us. And so this is a powerful picture. It was a, a powerful binding illustration to show the seriousness of keeping the covenant. But if you've already read Genesis 15, you realize that in this vision that Abram had, there weren't two people that walked through there. Abram, in fact, did not walk through that. All Abram saw was a, a, a blazing torch that represented the Lord going in the midst. You know what that's a picture of? that this was an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant. God was telling Abram, it doesn't matter what you do, Abram. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you remain faithful or not. God says, I will remain faithful to my covenant. I will make this happen. And essentially, this is what salvation is for us. We trust in Him. We rest in Him. But God Himself, Jesus, is the one who walks through. It's not up to us to, to stay saved. We're resting in Him. We serve a God who is a covenantal, um, covenant-making, a covenant-keeping God, and we see that in Genesis 15. And we are so grateful because now as New Testament saints, we understand that the gospel and salvation is this sort of covenant as well. It is unconditional based upon God.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you that as we read in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 15, we realize that it was simply an act of faith, of trusting in the Father that enabled Abram to be credited with righteousness, that not only was he forgiven, but he was credited with righteousness. And Paul makes it clear that that is, is that he stands as an, an illustration for us, that as we trust in you, Jesus, and what you did for us there on the cross, and as you vacated the tomb, as we rest in you, that you forgive us of our sins, and you credit us with your righteousness so that when the Father looks at us, He doesn't see a sinner anymore. He sees someone who has obeyed the law because we are credited with your righteousness. But Lord Jesus, I also thank you so much for the, the powerful picture in Genesis 15 as, as the Father walked through in that vision, walked through that um, ghastly scene to picture how committed He was to fulfilling His end of the covenant. And I thank you, Jesus, that as it were, you have done that very same thing, that my salvation is not resting upon me, it's resting upon you and your promise that everyone who believes will not perish but have eternal life. Thank you that I can rest in that. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So we've come to the end of another day as we are making our way through God's Word. I hope you're enjoying this journey. I do thank each of you uh, who have posted on the Facebook page and giving your reflections, uh, putting some questions on there, certainly giving me some ideas of how it is that I can improve this. Please feel free to keep doing that. I'd love for us to interact and for us to enjoy this time together. Um, we will look forward to seeing you tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.